welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. James Bond is currently on assignment prepping for his next podcast, uh, but in the meantime, I'm Paul Atkinson, your interim host, and I'm joined today by James Page, Bill Koenig, and Ben Williams. Could you go ahead and introduce yourselves, guys? Hi, I'm James Page, co-founder of MI6, MI6 Confidential Magazine, and uh, here's the plug. If you haven't subscribed already, issue 51 is at the printers, so by the time you listen to this, it might well be in the post. I'm Bill Koenig, and I run a site called The Spy Command, and uh, I also have a, another site called The Bond 25 Timeline, and as we record this, there are actually four, four entries to put in today, so events are picking up. Uh, hi, I'm Ben Williams. I write for MI6HQ.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential, and I'm currently sunning myself in LA. Right, that's why your internet connection sounds so good. That's right. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I got like the the feedback that I got on Twitter, like the one kind of comment that I got from anybody was that I should get a better microphone. That's literally like the it wasn't like I oh, really I thought what you said was very insightful or anything like that. I literally got get a better mic. I endorse so. this message. <laughs> <laughs> Doing my best, guys. Doing my best. Yeah, no, that's cool. All right. So today we would like to talk about a nice neat self-contained topic called Defend the Indefensible. So I'm sure that we all have strong opinions about weak subjects in the Bond law, and we want to explore some of those. So last week when I was absent, James led a panel talking about Honor Majesty's Secret Service and the paradigm example that kept coming back up in that conversation was perhaps Honor Majesty's Secret Service would be better with Connery. I'm going to do a little bit of follow-up because it's my prerogative hosting this podcast. But I think one of the interesting things is, whilst maybe you didn't want to necessarily uh, swap Connery out verbatim with uh, George Lazenby and get, you wouldn't necessarily get a better film, perhaps what you would get by putting Connery in, Connery in Honor Majesty's Secret Service is some continuity with You Only Live Twice and hopefully maybe in an alternate universe them filmed in the order that Fleming wrote them so that the, the mood of the novel from You Only Live Twice is maybe a bit more reflected in the film series, which is something that I've always missed because I found that novel to be interesting and much more explorative. And we all know that You Only Live Twice became the sort of like the, the paradigm, big guns and big explosions Bond film. So maybe in an alternate world, I could defend the idea that uh, that Sean Connery should be in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, if only to set him up for uh, a better You Only Live Twice. That's a bit like saying without, without having Dine of the Day, we wouldn't have had Casino Royale. <laughs> I wouldn't sacrifice on a Majesty's Secret Service. You played that card before, James. <laughs> yes, I know. I wouldn't sacrifice the film that we have for a better You Only Live Twice. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's. Uh, I think that's true. Like it's such a like. So, Majesty's is such a great film. Um, it, does it matter that Twice is bloated? kind of mess that it is i mean it's a very beautiful looking film don't get me wrong but i wouldn't i wouldn't alter anything we had just to get get a better version of that and a less good version of um majesties you've got to admit though that that the i guess the the occasions on which yeah which we've tried to draw some continuity in the bond series between films has not always been the most successful and i've always wondered what would happen if there was a little bit more continuity so i remain curious and i grant you yes like would would we clean the slate away and say majesties which is you know obviously had this renaissance and had this and and, and is a and is an interesting film in the series and sort of like i tend to like the ones that sort of push the mold a little bit more than the ones that are sort of formulaic. So yeah, I'm not about to scrub it from history either. Probably the one person who would have preferred Connery and Honor Majesty's Secret Service would have been the accountant at uh, United Artists, because I suspect had Connery been in Honor Majesty's Secret Service 
it would have done better box office than the movie we got. I mean, I like the movie we got just fine. And I, I, and I agree it's one of the best, but just, you know, in the sense that you wouldn't have had the whole thing about the new bond. And yeah, I mean, the box office definitely did fall off between you only live twice and on her majesty's secret service bill you've you, your argument is one of one of um box office returns paul's you, yours is one of continuity i don't think either of those stand up strongly enough to say um yeah we should have we, sh- we should have got connery in that movie for for that reason we got a, such a good film in majesty's secret service who cares that it didn't make the money who cares that it doesn't fit the timeline it's it's a great film and it's it's I, I, I still say that it's, you know, probably the best Bond film. So I, I agree with you about the quality of Majesties. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, you know, I'm just tossing the idea out there that the way I was trying to cast my answers is the business guys at United Artists would probably agree with that. Oh, sure, uh, sure. Uh, absolutely. But then it, whoever was in it and whatever it, I mean, okay, yeah. So if it had been a Connery movie, if he'd have come back and he'd have done it, maybe it would have made the money. But I think it would have been a tonal mess. And I think we said this last week. I don't think that Connery is the right guy to be in that movie with the tone I of, agree, of that yeah. film. So would it have been successful? I, I, it's impossible to, to make that argument. I think what would have happened was you'd have got an audience who was expecting to see a Goldfinger and would have seen the, the Connery swagger in this you know this 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 very personal and tragic story and it would have been quite jarring the fact that it was another character sorry another actor allowed that to, to work I sure think. and the you only live twice that i want to see might actually not honestly pursue connery either because of the the depressed tones the the overtones of you know battling with mental health issues the loss of his wife i'm not sure either if you're right if connery could potentially have pulled that off I, when i was listening to you guys talk about that that was the one thing that was in my mind was not not whether or not sean connery should have played it but what benefits would have come from him staying on a bit longer and had had in an alternate universe they made majesties before twice i'd be interested to see that which was the faithful uh, faithful version of you only live twice would have been very difficult to do um you know the whole garden of death i see bond fans oh we we, we gotta get the garden of death in the movie but i mean the garden of death sequence i mean a lot of it's you know bonds inner monologue and then it's like okay <laughs> now how do you bring that into a movie where i don't know a minute of screen time something like that you know it, I'm not saying it can't be done, but I mean, it would be extremely difficult to, to pull off. Of course, and the ethos and the pathos of the story rather than, say, the machinations of the plot. It was what I was concerned with, like the, the tone of the novel right. and the emotions there and not just, you know, like where he goes and what he sees and who he meets. Right. I was just going to say Casino Royale was going to be hard to pull off, but they did. But they you know had to add a considerable amount of action scenes and, and maybe they even added too many, you know, because the uh, sort of the climax has what a whole city block of Venice collapsing or whatever. Um, that's a little over the top, but I mean, they were able to do it, but you know, they had to take some, you know, creative. I think, yeah, I, I think, I think they can, they do these ad- adaptations very well when they, when they do them. Um, I mean, Casino Royale, I think, Bill, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, it's it stays very faithful to to the to the narrative of the novel, but they had to cram in some action for the modern sensibilities. And I'm sure that if they were doing a, a faithful adaptation of uh, You Only Live Twice, they would have crammed in some 
action scenes or if they were doing it now that's what they would do but what i'd like to do is just to address paul's point the way they did it well though ben was that action that we talk about cramming into casino rail most of it was done in the beginning before the fleming material actually started right like the first 45 minutes yeah i mean it's like it, I, I look at casino royale as, as it's literally two movies it's literally two Bond movies stuck together. Like the f- the whole beginning part of Casino Royale, right up until uh, you know M comes to meet him in in Jamaica, that's its own little self-contained film. It's really only starts off being the Fleming book, really at that point of the death of um, Ca- Catalina yeah. Morano's um, Solange. character. Solange, thank you, God, I knew it was, it was there in my head. I would, ah, thank you. Yeah, so Solange, when Solange dies, basically from then on, it starts to become Casino Royale. And, and you can kind of basically, it's great. You get a two for one. Why not? What, what I did want to just bring up was um, uh, Paul's point about continuity. I was having a conversation with my girlfriend the other day, and she's not a Bond fan at all. I think that's fair, fair to say. Um, but she's kind of got an interest now. Um, and so she was asking about continuity. And essentially trying to trying to contain this continuity of this person who, who is from you know nineteen sixty two to pretty much i don't know two thousand and six where we're essentially this is the same person having having uh, shared experiences, similar characters coming through and but played by different actors there's no way that you can you can really maintain a continuity and I think that's why they pretty much scrubbed it for Casino Royale and started again, um, which is, you know, I understand why they did it, but now they've landed themselves in the same situation because, you know, after the departure of Craig, we're going to have the same thing. We're going to have to have another actor who's taking on all the Craig's experiences. So it's, it's a, it's a funny thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not asking for, I'm not asking for 20 years of continuity or 40 years of continuity. I'm asking for, well, I'm speculating about what interesting things might be added to the series had we had some more continuity. And I think back to the idea that From Rush With Love was supposed to follow, sorry, From Rush With Love precedes Dr. No, right? And that the attitudes of Bond in Dr. No is shaped by his experiences in From Russia With Love and the fact that he's left bleeding and dying on the floor at the end mm. of that novel. And that was an, that's another sort of almost missed opportunity where the material was there um, that wasn't explored. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. There's a lot of material um, that, that Fleming put in there that would have allowed that character to develop if they'd shot them more sequentially or made them sequentially. So here's a question then. If, if they hadn't made any Bond movies until today... And somebody finally like got the rights to the Fleming novels. Do you think mm. they'd shoot them faithfully chronologically, or would the studio system chew them up just like they did a little bit in the beginning? Oh, that's an interesting one. I don't. I don't think that they would necessarily shoot them faithfully. Um, I, I. I don't know. I think that they would. They would temper them slightly. They would probably make them period pieces. I would imagine. Um, if you've got the if you've got the rights now, and we haven't had any Bond movies, and they just got the rights to the books, they would probably try to make some kind of period um, adventure films. They would probably try to curb some of the the attitudes and try to make them a little bit more palatable for a, a modern audience. But on the whole, I think you'd get a perhaps a sequential period Bond with just maybe some um, less savoury kind of ideas removed. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of the Le Carre works are have which are perpetually in redevelopment or forward miniseries or for films or whatever. But aren't they some of them are period pieces that are written in the present about the past and then some of them are you know, he's been writing for however many years. So some of them are set in the 70s and written in the 70s, hypothetically. And then they make a judgment call about whether or not they can mm. bring this particular one when they face it into the present and say, oh, do we modernize this for an audience and set it in today's time, but have the same kind of characters and spirit to the story? Or do we shoot it as a period piece? At least there's this a genuine revival and interest in period pieces and now period is obviously not just like victoriana you know kind of like let's remake a um, a classic novel into a film yeah the the 80s is a period piece now yeah you can you know was it uh, ashes to ashes it was quite funny to see like <laughs> things from your childhood being like pastiche. the 80s are done as period pieces now <laughs> yeah that's another thing too so as bill says you know if you if you if you're doing something in the 90s like you don't have the mobile phones or that's the, maybe the, the the tech that you might have now that's so ubiquitous so they do become slightly period pieces. The, the Captain Marvel movie that came out in March was done as a period piece set in 1995. It shows how Nick Fury lost his eye. They used de-aging technology on Samuel L. Jackson, things like that. There are like lots of blockbuster stores. So yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's happening now. So going back to the original question, this week somebody, re- somebody released a, a deep fake of, I don't know if you saw this, of Sylvester Stallone as the Terminator in Terminator 2 in a scene that they re-rendered. And Sylvester Stallone retweeted it. It was that good. I mean, you'd be hard-pushed to tell he wasn't in that film. Um, So I I don't think we're far off from somebody doing something like recasting a Bond actor in a Bond film as a little pet project because this technology is available to anybody now. Well, that, that that takes us back to what we were discussing last week. And what Bill said was, you know, because of the script that was written, you know, for for Majesties originally when it was going to be Connery, you wouldn't have had the same script. You wouldn't have had the same performance. So if we did do a deep fake of it, of Sean in Majesties, you would you would really be getting something that isn't, oh, look, this is what it would have been right. like. It's it genuinely is like a having Sean of, Connery dub George Eisenberg. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I read a comic book in 1976 where the villain's plot was he got a hold of a device where you could essentially CGI changes. And so people in New York are suddenly seeing things on TV like the Kennedy brothers are alive and all this other weird stuff. And the city's very, you know, getting nervous uh, just because all these weird things are, you know, coming on TV. Again, that was however many years ago. And it's just, you know, it's taken a while, but yeah, the, the tech's getting to that point. To be fair, the question or the, the, the proposition I said I wanted to talk about was not, I guess, photoshopping Sean Connery back into into a film that I really don't actually mind. It was about exploring <laughs> possibilities yeah. that um, seem to have been lost. And so it's very interesting. Let me just wrap this up and then we'll move on to some of the other ideas. <laughs> it's very interesting how, um, I guess, how staunchly – both James and Ben defended Majesties as being this paradigm film that we don't want to touch in any respect for for any reason. And I respect that 
your interest in that, but it was very interesting to feel the feel the feel the fairly harsh kickback. <laughs> Don't touch my film. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Does anyone else have any suggestions for how we might be able to? Who else can we rib? I was should I should frame that. Who else has a bad idea that they want to test out on us? I was going to do the opposite, which is defend the indefensible. So, here's a opinion which I think will be unpopular. Denise Richards' performance in the world is not enough. Is undervalued and she is very misunderstood. Often dubbed the worst Bond. You're just saying that. No. For the sake of saying, for the sake of saying no, no. that, you you don't genuinely believe that. Well, actually, I do, because um, doing some research for an article oh, about that film a couple of years ago, I think it was. I actually flicked through her autobiography, and there's a very interesting section about the Bond movie in there, which can com- cast a completely different light. Is it is it in crayon? <laughs> it's, I'm sure it was. I'm sure somebody else tidied it up. So somebody typed it for. Her. Yeah. So so here's a little paragraph from it, which I think will change things so filming started in the middle of january for the first two weeks i loved being there and then i started to feel lonely and homesick i always love being on location for a movie i love bonding with the cast and crew and hanging out getting to know one another this experience was very different i had nobody to hang out with pierce was with his family the crew all had families in london and sophie marceau was in and out of paris where her family lived i was left alone on this long shoot but it was a huge opportunity i sucked it up focused on my work and asked my mum to fly out and see me my first scene was with dame judy dench <laughs> so in at the deep end i literally had one line and it kept me up all night i never sleep through the night before my first day in a new set anyway it's like your first day of school but i was up all night with anxiety over my one line with the fabulous judy dench anyway goes on to talk about basically how there was no camaraderie on that film at all and um she was left hung out to dry and it interestingly that whole chapter wraps up we're talking about the, how bad the reviews were of the film especially in the u.s and Michael Apted basically told her that the script and the film hung her out to dry. Like there's nothing she could have done about it. And that was, you know, the production acknowledging that the role and the script kind of sucked. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's not so much that the, the role sucked um, in, in, in so, some senses. I, I think they, that the, maybe that character kind of got developed. It was bait for bad reviews. They wanted Tomb Raider yes. in. Yeah, look, but the thing is, look, I've got nothing against her personally, but I think she was just clearly miscast in that role. And I'm not saying that I just, it just didn't, it just, I, I think another actress might have been able to do something with it. Um, but I, I, I appreciate that, you know, she felt lonely and cut off, but a lot of actors do experience that. Um, Especially when you've you've got a, a franchise. Yeah, but compare it to especially the Terrence Ter- Young movies where they all hung out and went on vacation together before they started shooting. Basically, you know, very different. No, it, I, I'm wondering if Michael Apted really felt that she got hung out to dry. What was he doing? Wasn't was right. there something he could have done to put her at ease? To yes, sometimes directors play mind games with the with the actors, but not always, and probably not even a majority of the time. You know, if, if, if he was sensing that she was having problems, I think it was kind of incumbent upon him to, hey, how you doing? You know, just to just to put her at ease, if nothing else. I, I've seen her in, in things that I've, I've really liked her in. And she's she's certainly um, competent and capable. I just don't think it was the right 
film for her. I don't think the character was, I think it got developed in the wrong, wrong direction. And I, yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying, James. You know, maybe she could have been given a bit more guidance. Maybe she could have been given a little bit more. But I, like, I can think of there are there are lots of films and productions where actors, you know, find themselves in in difficult locations and situations where they're not getting maybe the the comfort um, that they that other people on the the, the crew might be enjoying that's you know you i don't know look at look at a film that's shot out in the outback in australia or something like that you know you're you're out of your comfort zone or or anything or, or like insomnia shot up in you know alaska or something like that you're going to be in environments that are, are are difficult and that's part and parcel of uh, of the, the the process of I, I suppose i feel it's a little bit yeah i i, I don't i'm not trying to sort of um, not acknowledge her feelings on it, but she's in a you know multi-million dollar yep. huge movie, um, and somehow you know you feel like that maybe that's just a part of it. Yes, but we go on about the James Bond family, yeah. don't we? <laughs> and um, they pride themselves on really taking care of their cast members. And when you hear stories of people not you know like just a, a almost not to the point of it being excluded but above the point where they are uncomfortable in their role and in a foreign country for a very long time without many without many allowances for that you do have to at least wonder what did that do to her performance and her self-esteem as in the course of that film and so maybe she could have potentially have given us more but maybe the blame doesn't lie necessarily squarely with her acting ability or something like that so it opens up us and gives us a new conception of what she could have contributed had she been in the right circumstances well i mean that's that's a very nebulous thing to sit to, to to i mean I, I i agree with you but you look at um you look at how lazenby was treated on on majesties you know like he and he was the lead character he was the lead on that film so um or do you look at how Kubrick treated some of his actors um whether it's you know Cruz and Kidman or you know Jack Nicholson and um Shelley Duvall that all of all of those people got treated particularly badly in order to elicit a particular performance from them and in some senses, you can say, oh, yeah, yeah. What I'm trying to say, Ben, is that was unnecessary in this production, and it only went on to hinder it versus improve it. Well, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's true. I, I think it, it's not a great film, in my opinion, anyway. Right. Uh, let, let's say for the sake of argument, she have been encouraged and supported and given all of the things that she required um, to, to create the best performance that she could have given. I still think it would have been quite a flat film. Yeah, but not the worst. Not the worst. I don't. I mean, I don't. It's it's not die another day. It it doesn't. I I can watch that film, but it just it it sort of just sort of washes over me, and it it doesn't really have you know at least at least you can kind of spit venom at die another day. You know, with the world is not enough. It's just there's not enough there to um to really kind of sink any kind of teeth into whether it's positive or negative. Doesn't elicit a reaction one way or the yeah, other. Yeah, huh? just it's just it's just nothing. It's it feels very cardboard. Oh, it's that's a horrible thing to say because I mean obviously there's I don't know, I just think they could have done more with it, especially with the with the the caliber of actors that they had in that that film. I mean, Renard's a, a really interesting 
um, character. I really, I really, I really felt that they could have done a lot more with that than they didn't. And I guess the premise of Denise Richards' character, you know, this uh, female nuclear physicist who accosts Bond with her intelligence and resourcefulness, is a good thing to pursue, right? And it's probably timely in the series, given, I guess, we come off the back of Waylon, who is a physical presence and a fighting presence, and I think fairly effective in that film in terms of her characterization. I mean, obviously, she falls for Bond in the end, so she's not exactly um, she's not exactly breaking too many molds. But they had to take that lead female character somewhere. Unfortunately, it became sort of a cliche or a stereotype. Actually, strange little anecdote: like everyone else in the world, I've been getting into Chernobyl, but to the point where I listened to the Compendium podcast, and uh, they were remarking on how many how many uh, how many nuclear physicist heroes do you see in the world? And unfortunately, Denise Richards gets mentioned, and then laugh that um <laughs> and the, the guy that gets thrown up as uh, this is a good reason not to it's a shame because she's she is the character as written uh, and as you say is as, as a kind of a concept of a character um is is a very good character and it's probably probably says something about us really um as an audience and i'm not just talking about us here but like as a wider audience that we're we're not able to accept that a beautiful woman can do that job. I don't think that's why she wasn't particularly believable in that role. But yeah, I think I think it does say something about our, our kind of our social attitudes that we couldn't accept a beautiful woman as a nuclear physicist. You know, that's that's probably that's probably something that we'll look back on in years and think, oh God, that was that wasn't too great. But having said that, it is it it is a great character. Do we do we believe in her? Maybe topic for another day. Women in incredulous professions as seen by James Bond. Like, I mean, Pussy Galora as a pilot seemed to surprise Bond and Goldfinger. Holly Goodhead as the astronaut in Moonraker. Oh, a woman, right? There's been quite a few through mm. the series that I think you're right, Ben. Society will look back and be like, mm, yeah, that's not greatest, not the finest hour. Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll, we will move forward in... Um, you know, perhaps perhaps she was kind of unfairly maligned in in that in that particular role. But we, you know, I think that's uh, that's for the future to to decide. Yeah, the character was somewhat written differently in the first draft. She was not an American. I remember that. Um, it, I don't know. It, it part of it, part of it, and this is kind of unfair to say, but. Given Denise Richards' image and you know the types of roles she had played up till then, you get the impression they were that's what they were after for whatever reason. And there are a couple lines she has that just kind of don't sound right on the ear. It's like that first scene of her and uh, Pierce Brosnan, and this it, it's intended to um, establish her expertise, but it just doesn't. For me, it wasn't convincing. This is what James was reading about uh, that that book or that uh, reference material. This is the first I've heard of that. That she was, you know, feeling lonely and neglected. And again, you know, my initial reaction is hearing that anecdote. It's like it, I really think that Michael Apted should have stepped up and did something because you know she's one of the most critical parts in the movie. And and if you know your actress isn't doesn't feel like she's is having problems it's like it's 
well, it's, it's your problem too. And I don't know, I don't know what APTA did. In the days of the Connery era, at least, there's a reasonable amount of talk of people saying things like, well, this casting choice was thrust upon us by, you know, strategic network kind of. That happened a little bit in the Pierce Brosnan era as well. Yeah, (laughs) This person would be good in this film. MGM basically had casting veto, but they focused on the women. And that's why we ended up with Terry Hatcher in Tomorrow Never Dies, because she was a hot property at the time. So MGM wedged her into that film, which should have been Monica Bellucci, right? And Denise Richards was cast by MGM for this film i mean yes she flew to london to do the screen test but it's mgm that pushed for her so the women of the brosnan era were pretty much dictated by mgm one quick thing just about movie making in general and this is a non-bond example but the sometimes actors have different rhythms and specifically in the case of some like it hot marilyn monroe rarely got it right on the first couple of takes and whereupon tony curtis like his first or second take was like his best And so like, but with Marilyn Monroe, you had to go like 20 takes or whatever before you got the take that like really worked, at least in the director's mind. And um, that's, that's one of the weird things about movies. You sometimes have these differing personalities and as the director, you have to, you have to make some, you know, hard decisions. So do you go for a weak Tony Curtis? Is that what you're saying, Bill? Yeah. In, in other words, you know, Tony Curtis felt frustrated because he thought, you know, he was doing his best work on the first or second take. And but with Marilyn Monroe, it took, you know, more than 10 frequently. And so Curtis felt he was getting weaker and weaker as, as the takes you know, kept piling up. But it took that many takes, you know, in Billy Wilder's mind for uh, Marilyn Monroe to, you know, deliver her best stuff. Sorry, to come back a little bit, I raised the point about, you know, MGM getting the casting veto. And and I guess in response to the thought that, you know, maybe Michael Apted should have done something about it. But if he wasn't happy with his cast members to begin with because they were political choices or box office selections as opposed to ad actors, directors selection, then, you know, it's hard to imagine him being especially motivated to do anything about it at the time. True. That's a sad way to end the story, but, you know. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe I changed one person's mind out there that she's not the worst. My job is done. You should have the floor for the final, like, <laughs> um, for the final defense, James. Would you like to summarize your position again or your thought again? It's easy to fall down the media tropes, especially when we look at things like Goldfinger's the best Bond movie, Denise Richards is the worst Bond girl ever, um, George Lazenby who, right? I mean, these are all things that the media have just been recycling over the decades. Um, and it's lazy, I think. So sometimes below the surface lies the truth, and it's different to what the publicity materials and the media and the reviews at the time would suggest. And I was quite surprised to find that The World Is Not Enough was the production was very different to most of the Bond movies that we're used to. And it, and w- once you understand, once you read that and you understand it and you look back at the film, you're like, yeah, I can see why this is all disconnected and nobody's really looking like they're enjoying themselves on that film. There's worse performances in the franchise. Do you want to explain why you did that? I could have stopped that bomb. You almost killed us. I did kill us. She thinks we're dead and she thinks she got away with it. Do you want to put that in English for those of us who don't speak spy? Oh, un- uh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I just I should just qualify that um, I don't think it's she. She she has the worst performance. She's um, 
um, she's she's perfectly serviceable in a um, fairly bland film. I have a defend, defending the indefensible. Um, and the thought would be, okay, how smart is James Bond? Or he's not, you know, it seems at least at a certain level, he doesn't think very strategically. It's like his plans seem to be along the lines of, well, I'll show up and see what happens. And <laughs> so like with, you know, Dr. No, for example, like, well, let's go to Care Crab Key. It's like, well, I'm gonna look around I'll take my gun with me and we'll see what happens. In the novel from Russia with Love, it's like, well, the Russians have clearly set a trap, but I'm going to keep on the train all the way to Paris and I'm going to see what happens. It <laughs> 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 always works out in the end, but you know, it doesn't seem like he's necessarily the biggest strategic thinker. At least that would be, a, I suspect that would be an unpopular opinion to voice James Bond fans. So when I saw the topic, I, for some reason, I started thinking about this. And this is, you know, kind of persistent to the later films. Juan Rosales, well, takes his gun, see what's happening. Going to see what happens at the uh, hotel powered by Explodium. <laughs> <laughs> they borrowed that from the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I, you know, Explodium. I love it. Well, yeah, he's, um, yeah, he's, he's pretty good at um, just kind of wandering, wandering in and hoping for the best. In fact... Doesn't like when uh, when he gets the, the the manual for the Aston Martin. He's like, I don't need to read that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll figure it out when I'm there. Um, I, it reminds me kind of how Archer has kind of taken that on. Like, you know, they give him a mission dossier and he goes, I'm not going to read it. And they're like, Well, you always just walk in here like nothing's going to ever happen to you. And he goes, It always works out. And that's that's I guess that's kind of taken from that trope that it always just does work out for him. I mean, in, in the novel, as you were saying, Bill, from, from Russia with love, he knows it's a trap. And then there's a point where he's on his knees, you know, facing, facing off against, um, Grant. And you're like, Oh, so that's what it is. I mean, there's good plotting reasons why we don't get to see the gadgets in advance of the gadgets. Right. right? <laughs> But you know, I wonder. I wonder if the Aston Martin and Bond Twenty Five will come with a like uh, an onboarding mechanism that he can't get start to use any of the gadgets until he watches a, a heads up display explaining how to use the car. <laughs> yeah, and completes the survey to rate the training. Were you mildly satisfied? Satisfied? Completely satisfied with the level of training you received? Um, Your certificate Bill, for using I... onboard rockets is uh, in the post. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that you have different portrayals of Bond having different levels of intelligence. So yes, you de you definitely get the I'm just going to turn up and see what happens kind of Bond, which is certainly a Sean Connery's. But one of the things that I noticed with Roger is that well, I can say early Roger Moore, live and let die, just you know rocks into <laughs> oh, like yeah. as, as he's <laughs> a bit inconspicuously. Right? Yeah. What must go wrong? Um, the man with the golden gun. Oh, there's a guy. Kill me! I'm just going to fly my plane into his island well, and see what that's happens. Well, that's definitely true. I mean, come but, on, there's not really a plan. So. When did when did Bond start? No, so he's not a strategic planner. But there is a, definitely a point between 
Doctor No, where where he is a stupid policeman, and where he's suddenly, you know, giving an astronaut, um, you know, mansplaining how the uh, how how the centrifuge works, you know, and talk. <laughs> interrupting and talking over it. Well, well, Bond clearly knows like all sorts of interesting scientific trivia. He knows uh, the temperature of liquid chemical formulas, <laughs> the man with the golden gun with the, how those coils are cooled. And he knows, you know, temperatures of wine and sake and things like that. And also in the, by the way, speaking of Roger Morris, like in one of the octopus he drafts, it actually, you know, it's a stage direction. It says Bond, parentheses, ever the expert. <laughs> And then he says something. To be honest, like I said, this is something that just I, I thought about today. And it's like taking it just a step further. When you look at spies of that 60s, 70s era, now, like, for example, uh, Dan Briggs and and or Jim Phelps of Mission Impossible, clearly they were strategic thinkers because they always came out with all these ridiculous plan, plans, sometimes more complicated than they needed to be. But and then John Steed, he knew even more about wine. He he could tell he could tell by a drink of wine not only the vineyard the grapes came from, but which end of the vineyard. Oh, from the northern end. <laughs> yeah. So so what are you, what are you saying, Bill? Is basically that he he's rely on he relies on his expertise rather than strategic thinking, in order yeah. to in order to achieve his goals. It's it's purely. And in Defense Bond, there is a line, it's in Die Another Day, when M is speaking to Miranda Frost, and she says how Bond has this knack of just kind of provoking people and, you know, causing them to, you know, react. So he's going to do that with Gustav Graves, or she's going to do that, have him do that with Gustav Graves. Uh, that's just his nature. And Anyway, just it was it was just a thought as uh, once I saw the topic for this week. So no, that's interesting. I got me thinking about what, what at what points do we see Bond with something up his sleeve? I mean, metaphorically, not like the the wristwatch dart thing in Moonraker, but actually, maybe that's a. I've got one. I've got one for you. He he actually plots the attack within the Lipperist and the Spy Love Me. He actually works out how to do it and then does it. Yeah. Versus just blundering in. I was going to say also it would it would have been an interesting take on the scene in um, you know the the. Desmond farewell scene in uh, The World Is Not Enough. He, he has two things of advice. He says, what's the first? And the first is always have an escape plan. Now, what they should have done is had an insert shot of Pierce Brosnan, like shaking his head. What? As, as you can tell, I'm being a little facetious about this. But I, but I <laughs> through, the, through the series of both, you know, in the, both the movies and some of the books, it doesn't really always <laughs> plan these things out. Well, definitely. You when you look at him going going to confront um, Blofeld in in um, Spectre, it just it seems it seems utterly ridiculous that he's going going to somewhere where he has literally no knowledge of what's going to happen there, how where it is, how he's going to get out, what's going to happen to him when he does get there. I mean, and his his whole plan seems to be, I'll oh, I'll get captured and tortured, and then I'll just blow the place up. Even, even less responsible is taking him to Skyfall with no plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, we. Well, I'll take you away from the most defensible place in in uh, in the, the, the country, and I'll just take you to the, the least 
there's probably another sort of characterization of how Bond goes about his work, and I think it probably in the sort of the Timothy Dalton era, he seems to get carried along by the villain's plot a lot more, and he can only sort of like particularly true in License to Kill, right? He can only needle at certain points and at certain times and do what he can to disrupt the flow of the plan. But even in The Living Daylights, right, he's sort of like swept up by what's going on. He ends up with the Mujahideen by accident rather than by, in the Doctor No kind of story of wandering into a place, knowing what he's getting into but not having a plan. In Timothy Dalton's films, he seems to not only not have a plan, but also sort of not be in control at any point or making any sort of kind of decisions of agency or critical decisions of agency. I'm going to counter that with, he actually comes up with the idea to fake the assassination of Pushkin to draw out who's assassinating him. So yeah, he does have a little bit of a plan. I say license to kill. I mean, to counter your argument, if there is a film where Bond has to like think about how to move the chess pieces around, it's that film. Because he's setting everybody off against well, each he, other, he rather than just that, blundering in right and shooting away. folks. It's like he kind of, so. kind of blunders in for a bit, and then it comes to him. Wait a minute, I can manipulate these guys. So I guess, yeah, I guess he does some strategic thing on the fly, as it were, not necessarily you know right from the start. It's more about how he acts as a, an instrument that once he's thrown into these areas that he's a smart operator but the sort of the foresight the planning and that sort of stuff you know he doesn't have a big team of analysts telling him what the best escape route's going to be he just kind of puts himself in those situations and relies on his intelligence in the moment his intuitive improvisation that's right well i guess i guess that's actually part of his license to kill isn't it at the end of the day isn't isn't the whole reason that he's kind of given this autonomy because they trusting in his his ability to be an instinctual thinker and to make these decisions out of a chain of command that 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 must be part of why he's a double o agent you know if if you just planned everything and you went out like so if things didn't go to plan you know you need to be able to intuitive improvisation as you say see well well just to cite the mission impossible example and again i'm talking about the original tv show not movies uh typically you know those those team leader characters they came up with a plan and things did go wrong and then they'd have to figure out a way to get it back onto onto get, get the plan back on the rails and but also there were occasional stories where they were thrown into a situation but then they were able to use their plan making ability to do something about it like there was an example for example excuse me there was one episode for example where Barbara Bain was captured, they got the thing they were after, but she was captured. And so now it's like, oh, we got to get her out. And so now he's got to come up with a new plan. And that becomes the focus of the episode. So, um, and again, that's different. If only James Bond had a van, because then they could just modify the van every episode. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and convenient warehouse. It would be a miss for us not to mention the A-team if we're talking about planning plots and how to defeat the baddies because, you know, they had that down every episode. Anyway, that, that's what I have. So, I think we lost so James Bond, not in the analytical mind you thought he was. <laughs> Apparently not. You heard it here first. That's rather neat, don't you think? Brilliant. I'm almost speechless with admiration. Intuitive improvisation. It's the secret of genius. Thank you.
So, does anyone want to hear my indefensible thing? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, over the years um, of being on on Bond forums and chatting to to people about Bond, and one of the things that came, seems to keep cropping up is the the notion of the the black James Bond and whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing. I'm completely for it. I think it's I'm happy if they cast a a black bond i think it would be completely fine but i know that there are a lot of people out there who are very uncomfortable with that and for a lot of reasons and i would suggest that all of those reasons aren't good Hmm. i guess the thing is that bond fans so i i let me just preface this by saying yeah i i don't care about his nationality or race necessarily because i think we're past that you know fleming might disagree fleming was a loyalist to britain and all of this sort of stuff but the character is this archetypal character now right and it's and even if you say let's let's make sure that he is british that still does not put put aside the fact that he might be black, right? In in today's world, the reason that people are so vehemently against it is something about tradition, and arguments from tradition are usually fairly weak. Um, speaking philosophically, <laughs> yeah. Look what, look yeah, what happened I, to I, Doctor I, Who in the last couple of years, you know, because that was an archetypal character that yeah. got flipped, lost part of its audience, yeah. but gained a new part. I mean, it grabs tabloid, tabloid headlines, but I don't think I have a really robust understanding of why, say. Um, passionate people on the MI6 forums or any forums for that matter would be so vehemently against it. Like You forget, Paul. They were vehemently... I don't feel like I understand the side. There was piss and vinegar for Craig having blonde hair in 2005. I think, there'd be a, I think there'd be a very vocal section of the fan community that would be up in arms. Right. I'm never going to watch another James Bond film again. I guarantee it that would happen. And there'd be a lot of hostility to it i have already seen comments where people say if they do that i will not you know i will not watch another james bond movie they've already said that in in the hypothetical much less a specific casting sometimes i see these threads there was this one on facebook this about a year ago and the rhetoric was getting a little harsh i was i was feeling very uncomfortable i finally put in a reply and I said, yeah, you know, that'd be as bad as having a white guy play Othello. And then I put a picture of Lawrence <laughs> Olivia doing just that. And then I, you know, but I poked at the bee's nest a little bit more. I said, oh yeah, but that only happened once, right? And then it was a picture of Orson Welles playing Othello. And, and I said, but that's not like, you know, that's not like having white guys play Asians, <laughs> is it? And then I put a picture of Mickey Rooney from... Uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is like one of <laughs> examples, and like, and of course, this of course did not break the tension; it only increased it. That's different. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe. Isn't isn't that interesting though, Bill? Because it's funny how that's different seems to be the argument um, that that seems to be that's that's leveled at it, and without really backing it up with anything. Look, there's there's a huge degree of what they call whitewashing in yeah. in cinema at the moment we see it all the time um you know uh, annihilation um natalie portman's character was um so i'm reliably informed of in the in, in in the book was uh, was was asian ghost in the shell scarlett johansson obviously playing non-asian uh, character even though it's uh, it's clearly a, a, an asian role 
you, you see this over and over again um, in, in recent films. Um, I refer you to John Oliver in one of his piece, pieces of work ever. <laughs> right. Um, how is this still a thing? The whole, you know, like he went back through 50 years of cinema and pull, pulled out all of the, the most egregious examples by, by and large, right? There are some, there are some really egregious examples. Um, and, and even some, I mean, you know, it's one of those situations where you go, at what point is it, is it not egregious? At what point is it, is it just, isn't it just awful all the time? And, and therefore, I just don't understand. I, I've, I've had face-to-face conversations with people about, about this where I just, I, I don't literally understand the, the argument. I, it's, it's, to me, if they want to cast... So people have said to me, how would I feel about Idris Elba being cast as, as Bond? I think he would have been a fantastic Bond. Um, I think the only thing that's, that's kind of holding back would be the fact that they want to get probably, you know, a good five or six films out of him, and maybe, maybe that wouldn't be the the right casting because of that. But generally speaking, I think he's got you know bags of charisma and he's got great physicality. I think he'd be a fantastic choice, and I just find it, yeah, I, I, I literally draw a blank on why why this is such a such a strange thing and. In terms of the, what the question was, uh, which is you know defend the indefensible, um, for many people this is this is a, a uh, you know an indefensible thing, um, which I just I find crazy. James Bond is white. On Emergency Secret Service is the best film. You know the list goes on. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor Noah did this extended bit on this subject. It was on a Netflix special, and I watched it. And he essentially argued it both ways. He said, on the one hand, it's a fictional character. What's the big deal? Blah, blah. But then he also did this, like, I mean, he's just up on the stage doing this. So it's not really a skit. But he's like, you know, Black James Bond in Scotland. There he is. And he's got to run. Do, 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 do. And, you know, then he, then there's other guys. There he is. Like, so this goes yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, heard, then, I've heard that. And finally he says, how did you guys recognize me? Again, Trevor Noah, is, you know, for those who don't know it, is like, you know, black from South Africa. So it's like he can do this comedy. Blending into a crowd has never been James Bond's strong suit, though. Yeah, so really, I think he's yeah. that. True. Yeah. and But but actually, um, pretty much anywhere else in the world. Yeah, he's going to be fine. It might actually give us some interesting plots and stories that are like different to what we've seen in the past because I guess we are going to have to adjust to the fact that um, he'll have different experiences in this in this world. He won't have been brought up in the same way. He won't have come through the same yeah, pedigree necessarily. I think it'll be interesting. There was a US network TV show a couple of years ago that went that did a time travel kind of skit where they go back and into different points of history. And one of the episodes was a Bond episode where they go and supposedly meet Ian Fleming and they do all these Bond references. And one of the principal cast members is black. And they had that whole through that series as well, how do I go back in time and be part of this because I'm gonna stand out or I'm not gonna be accepted. So I guess there's an element they could use, but or you know, is is that the best thing to do or just ignore it? You know, actually, there was this sequel to Mary Poppins, and I noticed that the, uh, not the principal cast, but like the 
supporting players. You know, it's like suddenly London was a lot more integrated than the original Mary Poppins, ones, just <laughs> right. in terms of like street scenes. Right. And Maybe they actually filmed so, it in London, as opposed to on the back lot. Yeah, so so they basically, you know, in that case, they just ignored it. They just said, eh, here we go. I remember, um, sorry, just in terms of that, um, watching um, watching Mary Poppins with my ex-wife uh, many years ago, and um, just her revelation when she realized that it was all shot in the back lot. And she just went, oh. and she just went, it's all a set. That was just uh Apart from the bits they drew in cartoon. <laughs> was that not a set? Oh, okay. <laughs> Those dancing penguins, also not trained dancing penguins. Were they not? Oh, Jesus. It's, it's all unraveling for me now. It's, it's mm. yeah. It's, anyway. it's, a, it's a Hollywood plot, I tell you. I mean, they're, uh, you know, they're very conspiratorial <laughs> over there. And how many people have chimneys that need sweeping those days? <laughs> You're not allowed to build them here anymore. You can't even have a gas gas burner with a right. chimney. <laughs> so, so I think I think that was um, if we if we're tying up our own uh, indefensibles. Um, that's my that's my indefensible. I think it's um, perfectly acceptable to have a black James Bond, and I don't understand why anyone would disagree with that. Well, they've had, of course, have changed the race of supporting characters like uh, uh, Felix and, and Moneypenny. And the Dynamite comic books changed M, and I mean the original Ian Fleming M, to, to being black. And they gave some explanation of, of his background. I mean, that's Sir Miles. That's, you know, that's the original M. Not, that's not a successor M. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it, it has happened in the, at the supporting character level well i think i think it's great that we're having this and i think when when lisa uh was on um a couple of weeks back and she mentioned that you know it's great that we're seeing a little bit more diversity um with our supporting characters but they don't tend to be we're going to see it in this the latest film but probably um but we don't you know we either get felix or we either get money panic it would be nice to see a little bit more um, representative casting, even if even if you're just doing that walk through uh, the MI6 building there. You know, uh, you just it it just feels just doesn't feel particularly diverse. I have I have a late quick one to add to the defend the indefensible, which I thought of this morning. I'm not entirely comfortable with it. David Arnold might not be the best choice for Bond 25 composer. Did you say he? Based on that video. Based on the video they brought out with the different look and um, so far the different feel and tone to this film that we've seen and the bits that we've got, I love David Arnold's work. I think he's, you know, I, I, he's probably sick of this, the best composer after John Barry. And his work on Quantum was phenomenal. Maybe it's time for something completely different. So something that's not in the Barry zone. <laughs> so, something that's not traditional. Something that's not traditional. Just like we had a complete kind of change with Live and Let Die. George Martin and Spy, and maybe it's time just to mix it up and pick somebody completely out of the left field. Now, it's not always worked, Goldeneye. Eric Sarah. Yeah. Something as brave as that might work for this film. Yeah. I'm not saying we get Eric Sarah. I, I was thinking not only endorsing Eric Sarah, but like something as much of a change as that was compared to what it. You know, it, it came down to sort of the, I think, the, the, the timing 
in terms of like what what was happening culturally in the UK and and also in terms of like Pierce Brosnan's Bond it was very much that kind of Brit pop looking back at uh, you know, th- things seem to be a little bit more kind of pastiche, you know, like we've got a, we've got a Bond who is a bit, sh- bit Sean Connery and a bit Roger Morey. You know, it's kind of like the same thing with David Arnold. You've got this kind of modern composer, but he's kind of harking back to a little bit of um, John Barry here. And it worked for that Bond in, in that kind of environment. And, and I would also say that, you know, he, as, as you just said, James, his, his work on some of the, the Craig films has also been really, really good as well. But I, I think you're right. I think it's probably time that music has really moved on. Filmmaking has really changed as well. Surely we, sh- we should sort of invite, rather than be looking backwards, we should be looking forwards, perhaps. Do we, I mean, do we want a, a soundtrack that's composed of other free written music? Is that, I mean, so... No. No, it's got to be original. Right. I mean... I, I think it should be a school band from South Austra- from South Australia. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm recorders recorded. and triangles. That's the whole thing, just recorders and triangles all the way through. I think it would be a phenomenal score. Really, really refreshing and different. You know, you do have one of the youngest uh, directors in the Bond series, because you know, is what, 41? Yeah, um, and he has not worked with a um, composer... Uh, routinely single mm. yeah yeah there's no pattern among his projects so i'm actually to me that's actually one of the big questions out there about bond 25 because i think music is very important to the finished product and i'm really curious which way they're going to go if he doesn't have a pet composer like the, the thomas newman relationship then you know they may fall back on somebody that's reliable i guess give it a few months and they might have that decision come out because they might want to look at the you know at the rough cut and does this need to be brought together by an old hand or do they trust wakanaga enough to go and pick a left of field candidate somebody that he likes and works with could go either way at this stage i still think yeah yeah had it had danny boyle stuck with it i think it would have been daniel pemberton because i say that uh uh, Pemberton has like worked on his last two or three movies. Worked on Yesterday, which I saw, and um, he also worked with him on Steve Jobs. So I, I suspect Pemberton would have gotten the nod had it been Boyle, but obviously it's not going to be Boyle. It's not Boyle, so I doubt it'll be Pemberton. I was just going to throw a name in there. I wouldn't mind somebody like Clint Mansell or somebody just different to come in who does very iconic score, not known for action genres, but. Um... That would that yeah. would be amazing. I don't know why that. <laughs> yeah, Nine Inch Nails score or something like that. Yeah, I could, I could, I could see that. Wicked. This is the opportunity if you're spoiler adverse to check out right now, um, or if you're not spoiler adverse to go and watch the first look video if you haven't already watched it. Pause the podcast. Go watch the video and come back, and we'll see you in a minute and a half. Now that you've rejoined us, everyone, did anyone have any thoughts about the the first look at Bond 25? That could be a your impressions of how the filming is shaping up, but also your impressions of the marketing approach, because there's some interesting 
non-standard, non-Bondy kind of things going on there, which is quite cool. I was intrigued. I thought it was uh, it was a nice change up from the video blogs of the last two movies. You know, the video was a minute. It was you know very tight. It had that music which we don't associate with Bond. But yeah, I mean, it caught my attention. Uh, the video blogs sometimes got. They were interesting, but sometimes there was just a. T- I was just glad they changed. It, I'll put it that way. I think those old video blogs. It was like how how to spend two minutes without saying anything. They were kind of pointless. I think I got more out of this one minute than I did all of the video blogs for the last two films, pretty much, in terms of the tone of the film and kind of a sneak preview of what we might see, the feel of it. Yeah. But in case you're feeling nostalgic, there's some clapperboards just thrown in there just in case you need them. Yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute. Right. Scene 81. It, I can't escape that that sort of feeling of it being very much like that the Bourne thing where, you know, he's he's rolling around in that, you know, in his Jeep or whatever. It just, it feels a little bit, it feels a little bit similar in, in, in tone to that, which I, I kind of assumed that it, that it would be. Maybe I'm, look, maybe I'm looking for that, I don't. But just that whole kind of, you know, Bond's, Bond's retreated to this, you know, island life, and it just feels like um, born in Goa. Yeah, I just I was hoping it would be a little bit different from that. Maybe I'm wrong. The mirror got into it with a plot spoiler, or what it alleges is a plot spoiler. And um, since we're in the spoiler section of the podcast, I'll just say it. So supposedly, oh, Bond is Bond is in depression, and I I read that it's like, oh, Bond is depressed. In the Daniel Craig era, shock and awe, shock and awe. <laughs> it's a new, it's a new, it's a new approach. I was about to say, and they also tweeted out. Or I, well, I guess they also put on Instagram. They also put out another clapperboard, a, a formal clapperboard tweet because they were filming in London today as we uh, as we are recording this. So, as we don't care about spoilers in this section, that was scene 150, wasn't it? 151 of being in London. Just for context, Skyfall was 170, so it's very near the end of the film if he's walking around Whitehall ah. in the same suit he was in with the MI6. Visitor's take. Yeah, so does that mean that by the end of the film he's still he's still not on active service, that he's still, he's still, still a, a visitor. visitor? Is that the idea? <laughs> but he has an Aston Martin from the 80s. Yeah, he's got his personal car and he's rocking up to Whitehall to meet M and C-150 or it's a horribly long film and it's not the end <laughs> right i'm surprised they're throwing the, the the scene numbers out there because you know we've been picking these apart for the last few films now fans online have been stringing together you know the order of the sequences and stuff from them i'm surprised they're still doing it because it's for all the secrecy they're trying to keep on this film it's the one thing that's giving away the structure of the movie yeah but they don't listen to the podcast <laughs> <laughs> i hope not uh, <laughs> were you underwhelmed by the video then ben by based on your feedback on it I'm not. No, no. I'm not under. I'm not underwhelmed. Um, I think. I think what I'm feeling is that it. I saw exactly what I expected to see based on um, the information that we've we've been fed, and yeah, it. it I, I'm not. I'm not disappointed by what I've seen. I think it looks. I think it looks really nice. Um, I think it's. It's going to be from from what I can. S- see that it's it's fairly well put together and i guess i just feel like it's not necessarily something uh, that original in in that we've seen you know matt damon's character retreating to a hidden life on a on on a beach 
driving a Jeep, wearing wearing jeans. You know, I just I, I felt like the death of his girlfriend. Yeah, I, I just really feel like it could have. I mean, it may only be for a tiny little section of the film or whatever, but I, I just feel like, and I know that Jamaica represents the Fleming connection and everything. So I guess that you know, it's a nice idea that it is in Jamaica, but it, but I just can't help but feel that there's this tonal kind of mirroring uh, of that that film, and I really, my my biggest fear is that it's just gonna, we're gonna go, oh, it's that. And I really hope that it that it doesn't do something that we've seen over ten years ago. I guess my concern is that um, you know, for Skyfall, in mind, you only live twice, and the Man with the Golden Gun novels for that. And so now, it's possible two movies later we're gonna mine Honor Majesty's Secret Service. You only live twice. Mind that again, and it's like you know, just two movies later. On the other hand, Skyfall was seven years ago, so. Maybe that's not a big deal. Um, I mean, look, I'm sure it'll be entirely its own thing, and maybe I'm reading into this because I'm I'm seeing what I want to see, or maybe seeing what I don't want to see. But it, you know, it was, it's it's a nice tease, and I think as as you guys have said, it's a different way of uh, promoting the film than we've ever seen before, and it certainly gives us quite a lot to kind of chew down on. So. Um, yeah, I'm not disappointed. I mean, I think I've probably said it before, but if if they can let the locations breathe, which would be in contrast to, say, a Bourne film where everything moves at a breakneck pace and everything's sort of a medium close-up and everything's a shaky cam, I think even if you can see sort of like plotting parallels to the Bourne universe, you can probably quickly shake them because of the, the style and the, and the tone of the film is going to be different. Yeah. So, so I'm optimistic that it's not, it's not going to, you're not going to walk into the cinema at this stage and feel like you're watching a Bourne film. Whereas um, Quantum of Solace, on the other hand. Very, very much so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's, let's hope that they do give it um, space to breathe and, um, you know, I'm I'm confident. I'm not I'm not trying to naysay this thing before I've even seen anything, and I I think it's been a long time since you know we've we've seen Bond films kind of echoing Bond films. So let's let's just hope it uh, hope it does its own thing. Yes, I guess it's sort of at an inflection point at this point anyway, given that we started with a reboot and then we responded to some of the sort of prevailing norms. You know, Quantum of Solace was a response to some of the prevailing norms in action films of its time. And then Mendes took over and did the whole big like big party tribute James Bonders fifty offering, and then followed it up with something that seemed to be even what well, was even more ambitious, but sort of fell flat in a few different ways. So it's the question of where do they go from here? Is this going to be discreet? Well, it's not going to be totally discreet, right? We're going to get Madeline released in a photograph. Oh, no, she's, 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 <laughs> um, she's in it for a good least bit. in the pre-titles. I, I was taken by how the media covered that video. And I don't mean the newspapers because their day's pretty much done anyway. I was looking at the movie blogs that cover other franchises a lot, especially like the ones that cover Marvel and all the comic book movies. And there was a lot of positivity about that video in that segment. And I think that's the market they should be going after. So to have something not traditional and something a bit different, choice of music was interesting and I think worked really well I'm, I'm all for mixing it up we know the result if they want to do a copycat you know if they want to keep the formula the same and the feel the same and the approach to marketing the same we know what we'll get which was a bit of like ben how you mentioned the world is not enough was like kind of flat it was a by the numbers bond film 
so to to go a bit left field with some of the stylistic choices and the how they're marketing the film, um, I'm all for it because it's a lot more interesting than just doing the stuff they always do. And I think it's it's um, important that we do change. I mean, let's say we. I mean, like uh, filmmakers do change the way that they market things now because um, it's a it's a very different environment um, that we're. And, and a def- and a different audience that we're selling to now, um, so I think it's it's important to try to keep up with the the way that that's changing. Um, I um I I was watching well, I tried to persuade my girlfriend to watch uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang the other night, and I said, look, just watch the trailer, and the trailer was absolutely appalling, <laughs> to the point where I was just kind of like, oh god, I, I'm I'm really sorry i've shown you this now (laughs) you're not going to want to watch that but that really it really struck me that how differently trailers have been made from from i mean that's a you know that's not a a a recent film but it's um but it's not an old film by by any stretch of imagination it's really interesting to see even in that short period of time how how we sell films differently now It'll be interesting to see what happens with the uh, teaser trailer. It, you know, I'm not expecting the teaser trailer to be a direct copy of that promotional video, but it will be interesting to see if it has a different style from recent Bond trailers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait for the, the teaser to come out. Have they announced an editor for Bond yes, 25? About Americans. Has anyone seen any of their work? <laughs> That's, and as we all say in this podcast, Maybe a topic for another day, isn't it? Editing and the, the choice of editors in recent movies. You know, we, I was doing an interview with one of the trade papers this, this week, and they were like, "Well, how does it affect it if like the schedule's delayed and they rewrite some scenes and all this?" And I was like, "At the end of the day, the, the movie is made in the edit bay. So, you know, yes, they need the raw materials, but the, the, the decisions that really swing whether it's a great, a good film or a great film usually comes down to the editing. We're well, certainly going to have a lot to do with the tone." I mean, cinematography and editing taken together can do a lot more than, say, a director or in a particular person's performance in in a lot of cases. You can often save things <laughs> and ruin things. The other question is that if there's two, is that for expedience, right? If you can be cutting... You can be block cutting two scenes at once because they're going to have a contracted post-production schedule by comparison with past films or something like that. They're usually used to four months or something like that in post. Yeah. They might only be taking two as a yeah, way to I keep mean, the thing on track because of all of the delays and so on. So You that's might, you might be... have one editor assigned to do mostly the second unit stuff, the action stuff, and you might have the primary editor focusing more on the story and the performances and choosing the right takes for the director. Um, that's not uncommon. Bond films have done that for years, having like, an editor assigned to the second unit stuff so wouldn't be surprised any other final thoughts about what we got to see the title yeah i, I was interested because i haven't talked to you guys since what what did you all feel about a reason to die the title that was dropped at the last minute and you know you never know it might come back i i my initial reaction, no, you've doomed it now you have doomed it now. <laughs> to me it didn't have the strongest connection to james bond i mean i looked up you know um uh, it was at bomb bond memes, I think sniffed out the pointed out how it may have come from Honor Majesty Secret Service, and I looked at that passage. Um, you know, it's not the strongest connection, James Bond. It's like eh, I, I, I don't know. I guess I feel like the title "Die Another Day" when I finally, you know, because that title wasn't revealed right away either, and 
it was like, oh, it'll work, I guess. I don't know. I guess my, my only thing is, okay, did, did Universal or MGM or whoever, did, were they not told until, were they not told until the night before the reveal in April or had they like chewed over it for like a few weeks and finally decided, um, you know, like. So the most diplomatically safe way to say this is, as far as Universal is concerned, they might not be fully in the loop. Okay. To be honest, I was like more interested in the mechanics of it than uh, than the actual title. In other words, how did they arrive at this where they were like having to, you know, not have it for the reveal? That's that's what I was interested in, but I'm not the average fan, so. I, I don't hate it as a title. I think it's, but it's a, it's a little bit, generic and i and i i feel like it's not particularly strong it it feels a bit more like a kind of pierce brosnan title than um than a craig title there are lots of things that you can pick from the the books if you wanted to have a, a fleming title that you could you could dig out if you wanted to and i think just it it sounds more like a kind of you know the title of a a bond track maybe like a song than a than an actual bond or a continuation a continuation novel kind of title. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not the strongest. I mean, it's not the worst, but it's not the strongest. I think the mark of it is something like if you have to recommend it to somebody who's not a Bond fan and say it's a really good film, it's called <laughs> you know. Yeah. Does that come out of your mouth in a in a clear way that makes people uh, go, "Oh yeah, that sounds I, good." I've I've scoured the you know the Fleming novels as i'm sure we all have um for um suitable kind of possible titles and i'm not going to reveal any here because i don't want them to be <laughs> be pinched but there are you know i've got a handful that i've taken from the text that would fit nicely for a for a film title and they don't all con- contain the word die in them there are there are things that you can you can do now the other ones have got gold in them right yeah they've all got gold They've all they do all have golden, yeah. <laughs> golden, golden die. Oh, they, oh, Bill, I told you not to tell people that. That was, that was between us. One thing that wasn't really discussed was like, is there a reference to the? Is there a hook to the plot about this title? Because I mean, Purvis and Wade did the draft, and they came up with this title. And the villain's plot has been revealed to be something to do with like genetic sequencing. Is there, mm. you know, a reason to die? Is that a hook into something with the plot? Is there actually a connection to it rather than just slapping something that they thought sounded good on it? So I think there might be a deeper meaning to it than just it's it look it was the thing that they thought looked good at the time. Well, there might there might be a deeper reason to it as long as but as long I don't. I don't like it when you kind of have to shoehorn a reason into it or retcon a, a reason into it. Where you take a title and you go, oh, hey, like this, never dies. Yeah, this could work, you know, if we just tied it into this part of the story. It's, you know, yes, that happens, but I, I don't think that's, that's great. Well, thoughts? I, when I heard it a few months back, <laughs> I was uh, immediately <laughs> right. put, up, put off by it. And I said, well, that was a, that was a good, good decision to keep that one quiet. Uh, we, we made the decision to keep it quiet as well. <laughs> and then it harkened back to it harkened back to some of the you know, the die another day, another way to die, kind of like they're a mouthful that don't really tell you a great deal about what's going on in the plot. But as I said, the 
the real key is to uh, could I go to a friend in the street and say you really should see this film it's called this and not have people look at you funny you know it almost feels a bit sort of like James Bond Jr. when you start I, putting those cramming those things into the into the titles. If you if you go online, there's like company tagline generators and product name generators and company name generators, and it just feels like it it popped out of and you know a machine learning James yeah, Bond title generator. I totally. That is exactly what it sounds like, James. It's a. It, that's exactly what it sounds like. Yes, we've had quite short titles. Quantum of Solace being the longest. So Skyfall, Spectre, Casino Royale is, you know, they come off. There's a punch. They come out of your head and onto right? the page and into the yeah. into the zeitgeist a lot easier. Whereas, oh, and from a, a, a selfish perspective, I don't want to have to fit a really long title in the mini bar at MI6. So. <laughs> or, or, or you could follow the path of Shaq movies where they have five movies and three of them are Shaq. <laughs> yeah, at this point, Spectre 2 would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think if they if they end up pulling this one out at the last minute because they haven't got anything else to go with, sure. But they've got some time. Actually, yes. Full respect to them for actually taking the time to to work on it. Yeah, I it's, mean, it's, if they'd popped out and said, "You can't really change it later." hand. You can't really. You, you also can't go back and change change it, right? No, that's yeah, that's right. You know, best is. What's the worst thing that could happen? You have people talking about where are they going? When are they going to have the title? That's that's about the worst thing that happened. So that's not really. And that from a PR thing. perspective, probably really good because they can sit on it until they've got something to talk about, make a big song and dance yeah. about it. They can pull the cast together for another simulcast on the internet. Have people sit around awkwardly. Hopefully, they'll have their audio fixed. But well, there's just Italy left to go right now. Uh, yes, I think there's. I think we should. The next podcast, we should just all have. Uh, a list of um, titles that we think would be great and see if they pick up on, and then, on any of them. then we can have a Twitter poll after the podcast. Exactly, yeah. All right, guys. Um, any last observations about what's going on in Bond 25 land? Did you have a chance to look at what's going on in London? Did you have a thought about... I mean, obviously, James James introduced to the subject earlier, but was there anything else that we missed that we can wedge back in? Or do you want to talk about that next week? Um, yeah, there's. I mean, it's obviously a stunt sequence. They've got... Um, several stuntmen doubled for for Daniel Craig, so there, there, I'm, I'm assuming that there will be some stunt work going on. Maybe that's just because you can't drive a stick shift, though. That's right. Oh, there is that. Yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> and his hair doubles coming in a bit later. Yeah, and his and his teeth teeth double. Don't forget his teeth double. This is reminding me. The last panel of Mad Magazine's For Your Eyes Only parody was, you know, drawing of Roger Moore with all his stunt doubles, <laughs> including the sex stunt. <laughs> it looked, I couldn't be 100%, but it did, I mean, it's it's Whitehall Court, right? Yep. So it's the, the same sort of areas that they've been shooting um, uh, Skyfall in. And I think it may have even been sort of around the Corinthian Hotel, that kind of area. So that's quite, it's quite interesting that they've, they've, They've gone there, so that does sort of lean it towards a an HQ kind of thing. Um, so it could just be, might just be, you know, exterior pickups for you know, before they go into 
you know, the, the studio sets. I, I did get echoes of Skyfall filming because they shot a lot of Skyfall in London on Sundays, right? So they didn't disrupt. Because Whitehall is a ghost town on the weekends, if any, you know. People in London will be familiar with it because that's where most of the political stuff goes on and de- government departments are all based there. So on the weekend, there's really nothing going on there. So it doesn't surprise me. No politicians don't work weekends. Right. Well, they don't work now at all anyway until like September apparently. So, you know, it's pretty quiet. I, I just I, – I had to look at the photos twice to – you know, because Skyfall, it looks so similar. But um, that's not a bad thing because I think the London sequences in Skyfall were done really well. From, from what I can see of this, it only sort of looks like they're – yeah, they're, they're concentrating again on, on that Whitehall kind of section um, rather than kind of a wider London. So that's, I guess that's just bringing him back home rather than, you know, you're not, you're not seeing kind of any more colour of the, of the city, so to speak. Whenever we see Bond go to these different locations, you know, whenever, he, you know, he, he always gets a kind of a, you know, you get a, a kind of little bit of local colour. But London is always just Whitehall. You know, there's never... There's never anything kind of that goes beyond that, which I think is sort of a little bit of a wasted opportunity. But all right, well, thank you for joining me again, guys, to pontificate. Yeah, and I just like I think we should mark the occasion of a cultural um, phenomenon, which is Jerry Halliwell ended her Spice Girls tour <laughs> this week. I thought we could play out with her rendition of "Live and Let Die" to end the podcast on a note one. On, a, on a note I won't say if it's a good one that's my favourite <laughs> that's my favourite version alright guys thank you thank you for joining me over this, these, these dulcet tones I will say good night and good luck to everyone and we'll see you again next week thank you very much thank you for having me it's always a pleasure say live and let die live and let You gotta get-